morning I'm continuing to teach in the gospel according to John, and uh, you can be turning to chapter 18. Uh, that's where we'll find our message for today, John chapter 18. Last time I had this privilege to preach on this passage, uh, we looked at the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ as he led his disciples deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I pointed out that the control that Jesus had over that, uh, that circumstance was a pattern that is set for the rest of what we call the Passion narrative, the, the exercise of control. In other words, <clears throat> Jesus was not arrested. He gave himself up to be arrested. He, he was the one who offered himself. And we will find that as the passion of Christ continues, that he will be brought to trial uh, before Caiaphas and Pilate. And in each case, he's controlling the trial proceedings. They are not. He will even go to the cross. And even at the cross, he's in control of when he dies. And we learn later that he will rise from the dead on the third day, and it's he himself by his own power that will raise him from the dead. Do you understand that he is controlling this narrative? This isn't just a news story happening to somebody without control. Christ is controlling the narrative. I'd probably be remiss not to say that he still is. He still is. So I agree with Arthur W. Pink, who says that when Christ died, he did so voluntarily and without his consent, not a hair on his head could be harmed. So I really believe that the arrest of Christ set the, the pattern for the rest of what we learn about the trial and the suffering, the death and resurrection of Christ. Even the betrayal of Peter, which is our topic this morning, even the betrayal of Peter was within the gracious power and foreordination. I'll explain that word later. Even the betrayal of Peter was in the gracious power and foreordination uh, and in the will of Christ. In the passage we're going to look at, there is really, in Gospel of John, there are two people on trial. Peter and Jesus, one of them is going to excel with glory. This morning, we're looking at the trial of Peter. It's an interesting way, by the way, there's a literary device that John uses that the other uh, gospel writers do not use. I'm not going to emphasize this, but if we were to read, we're going to break up the Scripture reading a bit and just look at the betrayal of Peter, but if we we're going to read it all in one, one reading, you would find that John looks at Peter and then at the trial of Jesus. Peter, then the tri trial of Jesus. It's, like he's, it's just like a, a news camera is 
looking over here and then switches over here and then switches back over here. And I don't know why John does that, but it's possible that he's emphasizing what I just said. There's a trial going on with two people. And he's wanting us to see the difference. But this morning, I'm going to just focus on Peter, and we'll be missing the parts about the trial of Christ, because I want to emphasize that the next time I have uh, opportunity to preach. So John 18, we're going to read verse 15 to 18, and then jump to 25. So I hope you'll be able to follow with me. John 18, 15 to 18, and then jumping to 25. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, please go to verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Heavenly Father, we have the gift of your word, the scriptures. We are reading the very inspired text that you gave to John to write down. And now we have it before us in a language we understand. It is without error. It is complete. It is all that is necessary. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit, who is the author, would illuminate our hearts as we come to understand why we have this as a permanent record of Peter's dismal failure and what we might learn from it. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell the story as well as I can as I bring in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because all four gospels comment on this event, and I'm kind of drawing from all these testimonies. After Jesus allowed the cohort, which numbered about a thousand people likely, 
to arrest him, we're told that he was taken bound to Annas. Now, we're going to talk about Annas in the next sermon because he is the uh, he is the he was the high priest, and he his son-in-law Caiaphas is currently the high priest. But they take him bound to Annas, and I'll explain, Lord willing, next week why they would make that choice. And we're told by John that that Peter and an unnamed disciple. Uh, we have no doubt about who the unnamed disciple is. It is John himself. John never names himself in his gospel, and there's very little doubt about that he's writing about himself. So Peter and this unnamed uh, dis disciple, John, who we really know who it is, uh, followed behind Jesus to the home of Annas. There's... You, you need to understand just a, a little background. I'll try to not belabor this. But you need to understand that when, they, when it is said that they went into the home of Annas, they didn't go into his physical residence. The, the residents were surrounded, probably on three sides, surrounded by a courtyard. Of course, in the Middle East, the weather is normally nice. And that's where people would mingle and fellowship. You, um, as I thought about this, and this is only a joke, don't send me any emails. It, it's kind of nice. You, you never have to clean your house because guests never came into your house. You met in the courtyard. Everything happened in the courtyard. Um, and in fact, it was one step further when it comes and We'll, we'll see this when, when we get to Pilate's uh, uh, relationship, is never would a Gentile go into, or a Jew go into a Gentile's home anyway. So when we get to Pilate, you'll see that Pilate's in his home, and he's coming out in the courtyard, and he's got to go back in, and he's got to come out again, you know, as he's relating to this, because this was during the Passover, and a Jew would be defiled if he went into a Gentile's house at any time. And you're sure not going to go into a Gentile's home during Passover because you don't have time to cleanse. So everything is happening in the courtyard. So when it says it went to the home of Annas, it doesn't mean in his home physically. It means in the courtyard that surrounded this area. The, the meetings, the fellowship, the eating, anything that went on happened in the courtyard. But there is a gap in our understanding, because Mark reminds us that back in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples deserted Jesus. And we, we take that to be true. And then John picks up the fact that Peter and himself followed Jesus. So we don't have a story on that. This is something we can just imagine, but I, I, I have I have a, a distinct sense that probably everyone deserted, but Peter and John, who were always talked about being together, right to Acts 4, until they, when they healed the guy going in the temple, they were always together, Peter and John. Maybe they, they said, hey, this isn't right. <laughs> we should be following and seeing what's going to happen to Jesus. But anyway, they followed. And 
we're told that John just went right through the door opening into the courtyard. And we're told that John was known by the people in Annas's house, so he just went in. He was well known. That too is an interesting point. It's a, you know, how did John get to know so well the high priestly family? Well, we don't know for sure. We don't know why John seemed to have a free ticket into Annas and Caiaphas's home area. But you'll remember that John, whose mother was Salome, you know, so John and Jesus are cousins. Salome was the sister of Mary, and Salome was also, and Mary was also related to Elizabeth, are, are you tracking with me, whose husband was Zechariah, uh, who was a high priest. So I don't know, maybe they had family reunions back in those days, who knows. But somehow John was known, he was somehow connected to the priestly families of Israel. And they knew him, and he could just walk in the door. And so he did. He walks in the door, and he's into the courtyard. And then we're told that he looks back for his buddy Peter, and Peter's standing outside the door. So John goes over to the servant girl who's at the door to make sure that no one comes in that should, shouldn't come in. And Peter gains permission for, or John gains permission for Peter to be brought in. And that's where Peter faces his first test. This little girl, or this girl, I should say, says, are you also not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter says, I am not. Notice how she poses the question. John goes in the door, known to be a disciple of Jesus, but also having free access. And, and when Peter comes and John gets permission for Peter to come in, the, little, the girl says, to, are you, you're, you're not also one of the disciples. Now they're looking at John. You're not, you're not like him, are you? And Peter sadly says, I'm not. I'm not. So Peter and John then are in the courtyard. And somewhere in that courtyard, Annas and the group are interrogating Jesus, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, next Sunday. And in the middle of the courtyard, because it's cool, it's a spring of the year, it's nighttime, there's a fire. So Peter... I don't know what happened to John at this point, but Peter goes and hangs out the fire. We're told, by the way, by the synoptics that the, the, the temple guard and other soldiers are around this fire. So just picture the, the, the scenario there. This is a guy who faced a cohort of 600 soldiers in the garden, cuts off Malchus's ear, and then a, an hour or so later, standing by a fire with other soldiers. That's got to be weird. That's not a place where normally a criminal would hang out. 
but Peter is standing there, and a servant girl, again, a servant girl comes to him and says, this man was also with him, and he denies it according to the Gospels. Woman, I do not know him. That was the second denial. Meanwhile, over in the courtyard, and we learn this later, Annas is finished with Jesus. He realized he can't handle this. He's got he's to remand this case to the next level, which is Caiaphas. And that takes place. But they're standing in the courtyard. It says an hour later, and another one comes up to Peter by the fire and says, Certainly you're one of them, for you are Galilean. The other gospel writers add, your accent betrays you. Now, beloved, here we have a sad, sad comment. Mark records these awful words, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. He denied Christ three times within the space of an hour or so. This was the Peter that back in John 13, we read the words when we studied this. John 13, 38, when Jesus announced that he must suffer and die. This is the Peter that said, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter had said, I will, I will fight for you. I will give my life for you. Jesus says, no, you won't. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. Luke records these words in the courtyard. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I want you to picture that. Dark, cold. Peter's by a fire. He swears on a curse on himself. In other words, he's saying things like, may I be damned if I knew this guy. He swore he did not know Jesus. And somewhere else in the courtyard, there's Jesus. And in a moment of time, both eyes looked at each other. Can you imagine? Then Luke records, he went out and he wept bitterly. Imagine, imagine being in a situation where you just sinned and a person whom you love, a person known to you, simply turns and looks at you, caught in the act, caught in the act. If Luke hadn't recorded those words, I don't think I'd have a sermon this morning. If this was just about a man denying Jesus, 
I don't think there'd be a sermon here. But when Peter cursed and lifted his eyes and looked around the courtroom, there he saw his Savior looking at him, and it broke his heart. He wept bitterly. Jesus was on trial. So was Peter. Peter denies Christ, and then in a momentary glance, realizes that not only did Jesus hear that, but what Jesus predicted came true. Three times you will deny me before the cock crows. And he went out and wept bitterly. Three times. Later on in John 20, when we get there, we're going to realize that Peter meets the risen Savior, and they meet together, and three times Jesus will say to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter will say, you know I love you, Lord. I think there's a relationship why Jesus asked three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I want to make three observations from this story. Three observations. Number one, it is possible to love Jesus dearly and deny him severely. It is possible to love Jesus dearly and deny him severely. Number two, it is certain that Jesus predicts and foreordains our sin. It is certain that Jesus predicts and foreordains our sin. Secondly, or thirdly, it is self-evident that those who deny Christ, whom they love, are bitterly broken and repentant. Let me take the first one. It's possible to love Jesus dearly and deny him severely. We could line up this morning a multitude of witnesses to this. All saints of the Lord who have sinned grievously against Christ and our God. Abraham, the father of our faith, was a liar and an adulterer. David, whose lineage bore our Savior, Jesus Christ, was an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. The sad possibility exists, beloved, that those who are called into fellowship with God, born of His Spirit, granted the gift of eternal life, can also grievously sin against the God they love. And if you and I are not blinded by our own pride this morning, I and you will have to admit 
that there, with the grace of God, go us. The next time you read of a, and this is where we tend to, to get it, the next time you read of a celebrity Christian who falls and fails and sins, remember this. Don't be surprised when you hear of it. It's possible for a person who loves God to deny him and sin grievously against him. When you hear of someone in the faith who has failed and and sinned miserably, be surprised about two things only. Be surprised, first of all, that you don't hear of this every single day of our lives. And the second thing is, don't be, you ought to be surprised that it wasn't your name that was in the papers. Possible to love Christ and grievously sin against him. But the second point is that the Bible is clear that God not only predicts our sin, but he foreordains our sin. Now, I've used that word particularly, foreordain. It's a biblical word. It's one of those words that has no decent translation in the English. If you're you're watching this and you say, well, I can't remember foreordain, please remember it. And please use it, because there's no other complementary word. The word foreordained means that God plans to permit our sin. Many Christians have this view of God's will. Well, God has a directive will, but he has a permissive will. In other words, the idea is that that God is sitting watching you and I and just saying, oh, let them go ahead. Let them do it. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible plans to permit. And the difference is found in that little word, foreordained. It means that he's not sitting back idly watching. He's planning to permit. As with Joseph in Egypt, Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph said to his brother, you meant it. You willed it for evil. God meant it. God willed it for good. God just didn't let Joseph happen. God planned to permit his brothers to treat him harshly, sell him into Egypt. God planned to permit Pharaoh's wife to arrange circumstances where Joseph would be thrown in prison. God planned to permit those that he was in prison with to forget that they had made a promise. God planned to permit a famine. That's a whole lot different than God sitting back just watching the world go by. And God planned, God in Christ planned to permit Peter's sin. 
Peter sinned out of an evil heart, and God willed his sin to arrive at the glory of God. That's why a Christian can recount the, our famous and familiar and favorite verse, Romans 8, 28, for we know that those who love God, all things, now let's count up the all things, all failures, all sin, all pain, all suffering, all, 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 all work together for good those who are, to those who are called according to his purpose. God predicted Peter's sin. He foreordained his sin, and God was going to use Peter's sin for his glory. Luke records these words that Jesus coming to Peter said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, think of this, weeks before Peter had failed, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison to die for you. And Jesus says, the rooster won't crow until you deny me three times. Jesus predicted and foreordained, and I want you to hear those words, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. We heard those words in John 17. Just before this event happened, Jesus prayed, and he had Peter in his mind. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they're yours, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Christ ordained the sin of Peter. And think of this, he was already praying for him before he sinned. And one other thought. The moment that Peter sinned in that courtyard, our Savior was already starting to endure the suffering that would end up paying for that sin. <laughs> Thirdly, people can sin against God and feel sadness. Judas can, can deny Christ, and it feels so bad that he goes out and he takes his own life. But when Christians sin against God, when Christians deny Christ, when Christians com commit grievous sin, their love for Christ moves them to a deep sense of remorse and repentance. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. 10. This is a key text. Mark it down. It'd be a good homework read for this afternoon, that whole paragraph in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
There's Peter and Judas right there. Everybody feels sad when they get caught in sin. Unless they're a, have a problem. What's the word? Psychotic or something. Everybody feels sad. But Christians are to express a godly grief, a grief that according to Paul results in salvation without regret. Can you imagine this, beloved, this morning? A level of repentance and a level of confession that at the end you don't feel regret. Let the weight of that sit on us this morning. Peter is really no different than Judas. Why didn't Peter go kill himself? Why didn't Peter hide in embarrassment, never to be heard of again? Why did Peter become a great preacher at Pentecost? Why did Peter's life and ministry dominate the first half of the Acts of the Apostles? Why did Peter never, ever, ever repeat in anything he wrote anything to do with this failure? The answer is he repented in such a way that he had no regret. Nobody talks about this anymore. If you read 2 Corinthians 7, you'll find that true believing repentance is a repentance that will turn over every rock, will deal with every issue. In fact, Paul commends the Corinthians in their repentance. He says, you have worked so hard at your confession and repentance. You have made, your, made sure that all your sin has been dealt with. Everyone you sinned against has been asked to forgive you. Everything you've done, you've, you've done everything possible in such a way. Paul will say, you have proved yourself innocent of the matter. <laughs> That's biblical repentance. It's a repentance that doesn't leave a person feeling guilty. It's a repentance that, that in the end, the person says, you're innocent. Peter knew a salvation from this sin that had no regret. He never mentions it again. It's done. So let me wrap this up. If you belong to Christ, you're going to sin. And your sin is no surprise to our Savior. He's already planned for it, and he plans to use it for his glory, and you're good. But if you belong to Christ, your sin will bring you to deep remorse and a repentance at a level that you could be deemed innocent. Now, before I close, there's a natural response to this kind of preaching. I've preached this way before, and I've had this response. There'll be somebody listening, somebody thinking, oh, well, I'm going to sin. God knows it. He's going to forgive me. So I'll keep singing. I'll keep doing what's wrong. The Scriptures already anticipates that. Romans 6.1. 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul moves on in that chapter to say, no, that's not the way Christians think. Christians do not think, well, God will forgive me. I'll just sin anyway. And, and if I sin, then he gets to add more grace, and isn't it a good thing? Paul says Christians don't even think that. How can you be united with Christ? How can you enter into his death, burial, and resurrection and think that you can sin without regret? No, the, what the Christian says is found in Romans 7. The Christian is the one who says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? When the Christian is confronted by sin, they don't say, well, I'll just get to sin more because God gets to forgive me more. No, the Christian says, who can deliver me? This same author, John, who wrote this gospel, said in his first letter, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The call of scriptures is that we not sin. But if we do, we have a Savior. We have someone who will forgive us. We have someone who will cleanse us. We have someone who will accept our confession. We'll have someone that will take all the grief and the remorse and the pain, and allow us to live as innocent people, free of regret. Last Sunday, Pastor Josh took us to this great text in Hebrews 4 of our Savior, who we remember is told that is a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weakness, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then we were called last Sunday, so let us then draw near to his th throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, beloved, the irony in that courtyard that night, here's the irony. Peter was by a fire, warming himself, denying the Savior. And Jesus was being tried by the high priest. But in reality, Peter's high priest was just over there looking at him. The one who would offer him grace. The one who would offer him mercy. I cannot accept, I cannot help but believe that when Jesus turned and looked at Peter by that fire, Peter saw a high priest that was able to offer mercy and grace to him. If somehow this morning the Holy Spirit of God has prompted something in your life that you desperately know has been a wrong that you've done and you have never ever confessed it and sought true repentance, a, repent, a repentance that goes to the level of having no regret, I want to commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to commend to you our high priest. 
And I want to commend to you the preacher of Hebrews who says, let us then confidently and boldly approach the throne of grace where we will find mercy in our time of need. Let us pray together. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and we call you a liar. But if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we long for the day when we will sin no more. When the gates of glory will open. When our faith will become sight. And sin will be eradicated. Until then, we pray to you, oh, Father, wretched people we are. Who can deliver us from this body of sin? Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. And through his immeasurable grace will forgive all who come to him in repentance and faith. In some way, Lord, we thank you for Peter. Because we're certainly more like Peter than we are like Jesus. Thank you that you can restore fallen people. Thank you that you can forgive. Seal these words with your blessing, I pray. For I ask it in your name. Amen. Now, church, as we conclude our service again, thank you for joining us. We hope that within a couple of weeks we'll be able to see your face again and, and meet in this assembly. But until then, hear God's word as a benediction. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God bless you and have a great Lord's Day.